Greetings, Divine Spirit. Welcome to Deepen in the Divine Radio with your host, Scott Kreitza, author, intuitive, and seeker of the divine. On the show, you'll hear topics ranging from A Course in Miracles, Forgiveness, Communicating with Spirit, and Intuitive Guidance. I'll also have special guests and authors to bolster your spiritual knowledge, practice, and experiences. So sit back, close your eyes, and get ready to deepen with the divine. Greetings, everybody, and welcome to this is episode 16 of Deepen in the Divine Radio. And if you're listening to this uh, during the broadcast, it will be on Friday, May 18th, 2018. And I'm really excited about today's show because it's going to be pretty easy for me. I just get to read (laughs) right from the novel that I just published through Balboa Press entitled The Spirit That Moves Mountains. And as many of you know that do listen to the program, um, I love A Course in Miracles. I'm a Course in Miracles student and have been um, really since I read Gary Renard's first book, The Disappearance of the Universe. I talk about Gary Renard a lot, and it's because of his books um, that I wrote this novel, and um, which is really based on A Course in Miracles and the principles of practicing forgiveness as a form of spirituality. And um, the book itself again, is just sort of, there's certain things from A Course in Miracles or certain things that I read in Gary Renard's books uh, through his Ascended Masters, Artin and Persa, that really struck uh, a core belief for me, um, and it really resonated. And so just over many years, I kept getting these urges that I should write the story of Yeshua, Jesus, or Jay, um, and his wife, Mary Magdalene as a story, and what if they would have um, walked around in the time of Judea over 2,000 years ago practicing forgiveness or practicing A Course in Miracles, and what that might that look like, and especially what were they thinking? Because I know growing up as a Catholic, um, I was taught to look at their actions and try to copy their actions when, you know, what I think it comes down to is what you hold in your heart and in your mind. And so that's why I wanted to write a novel that addressed that first-person perspective of both Yeshua and his wife, Mary Magdalene. So I thought it'd be really cool today to just basically start reading um, from the the novel itself. And um, I'll do a little bit of commentary as I go through. So be, I don't know, maybe a behind-the-scenes reading of The Spirit That Moves Mountains, which is available on Amazon.com as either an ebook, softcover book, or hardcover book. So I really encourage you to get on over to Amazon and check it out some more if you really enjoy what you've heard on today's show. And before we get into reading, I'm going to start with the preface. Um, I always do a a quote from A Course in Miracles, and this one is actually in the novel. It's the only quote um, from A Course in Miracles, and it's from the text, uh, chapter 1, section 7, paragraph 4, and sentence 1. And it's simply, this is a course in mind training. And that's what I really love about A Course in Miracles and the idea of practicing the course and forgiveness, because it's all happening within your own mind. 
Um, you know, it's not, it's a spirituality that isn't meant or doesn't need to be kind of like thrown out into the world and at other people because, uh, you know, as a course will summarize and say, you know, there really isn't anybody out there. Um, and so that's why I personally like it is just, it's meant to be done internally. Uh, it's, it's how you're dealing with the world or what you think is the world and the people in the world and the, the situations and how you deal with it and coming back to a place of love or remembering to come back to a place of God. Okay, so again, I figured I'd start with the preface because it sort of explains why I wrote the book. Um, and, and of course, of course, <laughs> the inspiration behind it. So this is the preface section of um, from The Spirit That Moves Mountains. And I'm, I'm reading from the hardcover version today. Okay, the preface. A Course in Miracles has been a huge part of my life since I became a devoted student of its messages over a dec decade ago. I never would have embarked on this journey, however, if it were not for The Disappearance of the Universe by Gary Renard. Because of that first book by Gary, A Course in Miracles finally made sense to me. The thick blue book with the gold lettering that was sitting on my bookshelf collecting dust all of a sudden became readable. It connected with my mind and my heart. It was also because of Gary's books that the true relationship of Yeshua and Mary Magdalene really spoke to me. The idea that they were actually husband and wife and both spiritual masters seemed to be true within a deeper part of me. I'm going to take a pause right here and just again acknowledge Gary and his ascended masters, Art and Persa. You know, they basically, in all four now of Gary's books, and I would just want to mention that if you haven't read any of Gary Renard's books, R-E-N-A-R-D, I'd highly recommend going to Amazon, checking that out. His first book, The Disappearance of the Universe, is amazing. Um, you can also listen to the interview that I did with Gary on the show. It was uh, episode 10 back in Feb on February 9th, and we talked about his latest book, the lifetimes that Jesus and Buddha knew each other, which is amazing, blew me away. Um, but if it wasn't for The Disappearance of the Universe, a friend of mine had recommended that I read that book um, I, because I had bought A Course in Miracles over a year before that, and it honestly just sat on my bookshelf. I had tried reading it several times, and I really, I just couldn't. And this, I think, is a common tale that I've heard from people that um, have been turned on to A Course in Miracles through Gary Renard's work, that it's, you know, the, the thick blue A Course in Miracles book with the gold lettering on the outside, I think it calls to people, the title calls to people, but then when you start to read it, the language is kind of tough at first. But then after reading The Disappearance of the Universe, all of a sudden it's like my brain became unscrambled and all of the words made sense. I was able to read it cover to cover do the workbook for students section, um, you know, all with within a couple years, I'd say, but it finally made sense. And I, it just be, it's be a part of my life now. And because of that, I think that emotional connection with a course and with Gary Renard's work, there was just a few ideas that uh, the, his ascended masters had sort of put out there, never really in a whole lot of detail if you go through his books. But they basically said, you know, that uh, Jay or Jesus or Yeshua was, you know, so enlightened and so he, his mind was completely healed that he actually never suffered on the cross during the crucifixion or his trial. And that always fascinated me and it made sense to me because I'm, it, I had realized, well, gosh, if, 
if someone really truly is enlightened and is completely joined and in love and part of love with God, then of course the body would never suffer. The mind would never suffer because it would heal. And that concept alone just really struck a chord within me. And then it just kept building, you know, just the, the idea that Yeshua was married to Mary Magdalene. And according to Artin and Persa, they never had children. So it's not like a, a Da Vinci Code, um, Dan Brown sort of line of, of thinking. Um, but I was just fascinated with that. And then the more I thought about it, I started to feel a lot of a huge connection with Mary Magdalene. I just for some reason have this, I feel a stronger connection with, with that archetype versus Yeshua. And so just those ideas kept building and building and building. And I kept getting the urge that I needed to write a story. I, you know, I knew this was coming from spirit, um, however you want to call it, basically. I call it the Holy Spirit. Um, and I kept getting the urges and I was like, yeah, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to write this story. But then whenever I would try to sit down and do it, I would just freak out. Like I just couldn't do it. Um, uh, fear just gripped me and I couldn't think of any words. Instead, what I thought about was, uh, what are people going to think, especially like hardcore Christians or maybe some, some friends of mine that are still, uh, you know, consider themselves devout Catholics, you know, am I going to anger people, upset people? And so I really stopped myself from making any progress because of those thoughts, those fear-based thoughts, which is interesting because A Course in Miracles is all about handing your fear over to the Holy Spirit. So I started doing that finally. <laughs> I'm a little slow. And um, luckily, by doing that, I was inspired to contact an old life coach friend of mine, uh, Jeff Jacobson, who I'll mention a little bit here in the preface. And because of that relationship, he challenged me to write the book, to at least write an hour a day until the book, the first draft was finished. So I think I've gotten my ahead of myself a little bit. I'm going to repeat myself as I read the rest of the preface. So I'm going to jump back into the preface because I'd only read the first paragraph. So I'm going to jump back in the second. Something was awakened within me. I kept getting urgings for several years to write the story of this enlightened married couple walking around Judea over 2,000 years ago. I felt compelled to write the story through their thoughts. I knew that themes from A Course in Miracles would be integrated into their way of life, spiritual mastery, and teachings. What I wasn't ready for was the fear I had around even starting the story. It felt huge. It felt controversial. It felt, like I, it felt like I would anger a lot of people with these thoughts. I struggled for two years. I knew I wanted to write the novel, but just couldn't get myself to start writing a single word. I kept thinking about potential hate mail and angry groups of people who felt the story would rob them of their current belief system. Then I remembered to just forgive, to realize I was making up all of the fear and to let it go. That's when I was inspired to hire a longtime life coach friend of mine, Jeff Jacobson. I found out he was also a novelist, and we fell right back into our fun coaching relationship. He was also crafty enough to get me to commit to writing the first draft of The Spirit That Moves Mountains by committing to writing one hour per day. 
One hour a day? Are you crazy? I'm sure I shouted this at Jeff. But my heart and mind were made up. I was committed. The story at least needed to be written. I didn't have to have it published if I didn't want to, or if a little voice whispered, there's no need to publish this. This was meant only for you. But alas, I had the desire and what felt like the support. And oddly enough, about a week into writing the novel, I passed out for the first time in my life. And I went through several months of severe lightheadedness and just crazy medical issues. The only respite from the crazy body issues was writing for one hour a day. That one hour was bliss. I had no physical symptoms or lightheadedness. Words poured out. I finished just over a month later. Well, the first draft at least. I have no idea if the story will resonate with you as it did for me. All I know is that I thoroughly enjoyed writing it and feel completely blessed to have even imagined what Yeshua and Mary Magdalene were like, how they thought, how they forgave, and how they loved God. I am deeply changed because of it. Something has healed within me. I invite you into the same journey, and my hope is that you also feel the same sense of peace and healing. If not, I suppose this was meant to be a forgiveness opportunity for you. Forgive in peace, my brothers and sisters. Scott Kreitza. Okay, so that was the preface. And again, I, you know, I, I completely understand that by trying to imagine how Yeshua thought, not just what he, how he acted, but how he thought, some people might consider that to be blasphemous or that I'm just some evil dude, you know, trying to take away the, the real story of the Bible, the real meaning of the Bible. I mean, that's exactly why I wanted to write this as a novel, because it's just my interpretation of it. It's just what feels right to me or what I felt guided to write about. And, you know, I guess I can understand why someone would be upset. I just, you know, it wasn't my intention to write a story like this to harm. You know, I really feel from my heart that I wrote this so that people could understand a bigger perspective of love, especially love of God, and and how we can also utilize and lean on the Holy Spirit, which is the voice for God, the comforter, our guide, really, as we're kind of wandering around lost in this world while God is still up in heaven. So all I can say is, you know, I wrote this without any malicious intent. Um, and if someone, you know, interprets this in a way where they think it's, they need to get angry and upset about it, then I, again, like I wrote, I just, I guess this is just meant to be a forgiveness opportunity. And I'll take whatever heat comes my way, because I guess that's something that I need to learn, which has come up a little bit already. It's not surprising. I expected to get some, you know, negative feedback about what I was writing. Um, but, you know, that's just part of the deal, I think. I think in the end, though, this story, if you're open, your mind is open enough that maybe, you know, you'll you'll feel this at the heart level. And maybe it'll get you to think and see things a little bit differently and helpful. So that was the intent. And so I just felt like I needed to say that before we jump into the story here. Okay. So now the way I'm just going to explain this briefly, the way that I've set up um, sections is that you'll see first um, 
which perspective the story is written from, either Yeshua or Mary Magdalene. There's actually a small section in here where it's written more uh, following Lazarus, um, because uh, I do go into how Yeshua might have raised his cousin Lazarus from the dead, what that might have been like, that thought process and that connection process. And so we follow Lazarus for a couple chapters um, before, uh, well, I won't give it away. Uh, that would have been a spoiler. I'm not going to do that. Um, and then the last section of the book is the perspective of the Holy Spirit. But throughout the book, it's mainly Yeshua or Mary Magdalene. So before we start uh, chapter one, we start with Yeshua. This is Yeshua's perspective. So we're basically in Yeshua's first person perspective. So chapter one. The nail that entered my flesh was driven by anger. Yet all I felt was love for the centurion, my brother. That was all I was experiencing at this point. No pain, no discomfort, no tears, and no remorse for the path I was on and the piece of wood to which I was being secured. All I felt was love and whole connection with my father. Clavius, the centurion, had kept sneaking glances at my face since we'd arrived on the hilltop. He was seeking the same pained expressions of anguish and utter defeat as my brothers were experiencing on their crossed pieces of lumber. I could not offer the satisfaction since nothing remained but the deepest love for my brother, a son of God. I closed my eyes and used the tool of forgiveness one last time by thinking, I created this dream. I would rather experience the peace of God, my Father, instead of this. I release this to the Holy Spirit to heal. And kind of like A Course in Miracles, there's a lot of concepts dropped in just this very short chapter. So that's the end of the first chapter, very short. And basically, the novel is going to be building on the concepts of forgiveness and A Course in Miracles um, from this point forward. And actually, before we jump into the next um, paragraph or uh, chapter, excuse me, um, I did get a question from a friend who was reading the ebook version and was having a hard time and wondering if, you know, maybe they should understand A Course in Miracles first before reading this book. And I would say it's almost the opposite, that maybe you would read this book first, kind of like a Gary Renard thing, before you jump in the course, if, if you find the course um, hard to understand or read. But at the same time, I just think that this material about forgiveness written in this way, and whether it's my book or maybe A Course in Miracles, it's just maybe not for someone, you know, even though it's a, a spiritual teaching that I'm really into, obviously, it took me a little bit to get into it. And so, you know, you might find the same, like you might be listening going, I'm not getting this, or this doesn't make sense. And that's okay. Uh, maybe someday it will or maybe it never will. It's it's all right. I just look at, you know, because I'm an engineer by day, I kind of look at everything as like a probability curve. You know, the idea that everybody under the tail, the distribution curve would love A Course of Miracles or would love this book is it's that doesn't really ring true. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Nobody loves th the same thing throughout the world. Even things that are popular, not everybody loves them. So anyway, just kind of rambling again. <laughs> so we're going to move on. So the next section, now we're in Mary Magdalene's point of view and chapter two. 
Despite all of my training and experience with my love, teacher, and partner, Yeshua, watching him go through his final teaching lesson was not an easy undertaking. I was deeply connected with Mother and Holy Spirit, yet there were moments during his post-trial taunting and whipping, the march to Golgotha, and the eventual crucifixion that were harder than others. I had to use every trick I'd learned from Yeshua and Spirit to stay in connection with Mother. My eyes and mind wanted me to believe that the man I had come to love so completely was being cruelly tortured. I was at peace most of the time, but there were moments when I believed he suffered, so I suffered as well. My biggest forgiveness lesson started months before the temple guards took Yeshua after our celebration dinner. While we lay lay resting after a long day of travel and teaching, he leaned toward my ear. Mary, my love, we must speak, he whispered while kissing my ear. As always, it sent tingles down my body and horripilation appeared on my arm. I sighed, having an inclination of what Yeshua was going to talk about. He had been hinting at a final lesson for weeks, and I had a feeling he was to reveal this lesson to me now. Have you seen the future, Mary? He asked, his eyes aglow. Do you know what is to come the next few months? I have not given that much thought. I'm just enjoying each day and moment with you and with our brothers and sisters. I paused and gently bit my lower lip. What is it that you see or know, Yeshi? He gently ran his fingers through my hair until his warmth touched my scalp. It sent delightful embers down my spine. It has been shown to me many times that I will indeed be arrested and sentenced to crucifixion, which is what our group of friends has feared. He paused, filling the arid night with silence. I would imagine you have felt the same. I turned around to look into his dark brown eyes. They were glimmering and shining. To him, his last forgiveness lesson was just like visiting homes or raising the dead. It was no longer a matter of levels of difficulty. It was just who he was now, complete and whole. He was more beautiful than anyone I had ever known. He radiated love and truth in such magnanimous ways that at times it made me weep. This was going to be one of those times. Tears ran from my eyes and he held me close to his chest while rubbing my back and kissing the top of my head. Yes, my love, he said. This is meant to be your greatest forgiveness lesson as well. Remember that this is all a dream, and I am simply spirit, while your eyes pay witness to what would appear to be horrible atrocities being acted upon my body. I pulled away from his chest and wiped the tears from my eyes. I don't think the worst part will be what happens to your body, The hardest part will be not having you here with me like we are now. I admit that I fear the loneliness, even though I also feel so connected with Mother in heaven. There is still a part of me that is not free of the need to be with you in physical form. Yeshua looked down at her clasped hands and then back up with a smile on his face. Once I have risen, I will be with you in more ways than you could ever imagine. You will never be alone. You are never alone. Just speak of me in your mind, and I will always be with you. I am one with him, and you are as well, my love. 
For a moment, I closed my eyes and felt the connection with our mother run through my body and my mind. In that instant, I was at peace again. When I opened my eyes and looked to my husband, I was split again, reminded that our days together were limited. My body and emotions reacted with fresh tears. I buried my face in his robe and allowed the grief to run through me, not judging or condemning how I reacted. It was just part of the process. I had learned long ago that allowing emotions was a much better process than trying to ignore or stop them. Yeshua simply held me. He swayed side to side, rocking me into a gentle state of love and peace. Slowly, my tears subsided, and I was able to lift my head and look into his eyes again. Oh, those beautiful eyes that shone brightly of love. They gave me strength and triggered a doubt of my own inner strength. When he leaves the dream of bodies, will I be prepared? Eventually that thought drifted off, and we embraced like children on a cold winter's night. My love, I will remember to love our mother and join with you in spirit every day that is left of my life, I said. I will remember that this is all a dream I made up. I will see you and all of my brothers and sisters, and know that we are one together in heaven. Ah, my second greatest teacher, he joked laughing and kissing me on the lips. We would both say that to each other, implying that our greatest teacher was God. I closed my eyes and laughed with him. The heavy tension lifted immediately, and I accepted that my love in this lifetime was meant for greater things than just teaching and being my husband. I had known this ever since we were younger, and discovering all of our spiritual gifts and connections. My love, what will you have me do with this knowledge you have shared? I asked, wondering if you wanted me to impart any of this to our closest friends. I only want you to take this information and then forgive whenever the urge to mourn, get angry, or feel sad comes up in your mind. Again, this is your greatest forgiveness opportunity, and it will set you completely free. He caressed my cheek and kiss me softly again. Now, let's pray together, and then we shall sleep, yes? I nodded. We both got into a cross-legged position and began to connect and meditate on God. I asked the Holy Spirit to come into my mind and help heal the idea that my husband was to be killed and that it would be a painful process. Before long, I felt deeply at peace and soon we were both nestled next to each other, ready for a few hours of sleep before getting up and starting the day with more meditation. End of chapter. Switch to Yeshua's perspective. Chapter 3. I was seated cross-legged within an outcropping of rocks and dense olive trees just outside of Jerusalem. It was a favored spot for most seekers to be close to the holy temples but to also be away from the hustle and noise of the city. I decided to go alone, and only Mary knew where I would be for the next several hours. I had a yearning to be quiet with God and enjoy the connection without distraction. We had been traveling much lately, and some of the larger gatherings we hosted had attracted more fervent supporters as well as angry opponents of the words I spoke. Several minutes into connecting with Father, I felt the presence of someone watching me. 
At this stage in my life, it was not unusual for this to happen. Once I heard the sliding of steel along its sheath, I understood. My friend, the centurion who had been lurking around our gatherings, had decided to come by and speak with me. I said, Clavius, my brother, what is it you seek? Clavius had begun sharpening his blade and stopped abruptly. How did you know? He stopped himself, grunted, and then walked towards me. I thought it was time for us to have a discussion, Rabbi. I kept my eyes closed while maintaining connection with God. Yet being part of the conversation, I waited for Clavius to begin. Will you not look at me, Rabbi? His sword, making a high-pitched tapping tone on the stone-strewn ground. Would you prefer to join me, brother? We can join with our Father in heaven. It's easy. Let me show you. I opened my eyes and extended my hand. Clavius's muscular jaw clenched, and he rubbed fresh scruff under his chin and then sighed. I did not come here to learn of your mystical Jewish ways or to hear your speeches. I have heard enough of them lately. He lifted his sword with a slow scrape across the dirt. I have come to give you the first and only warning you will ever get from me. Leave Judea today. I will not pursue you, and your life will be spared. Just never return to this land or any Roman land again. He stepped forward and placed the tip of his blade on my chest and gave a very slight push. Feeling nothing, I simply smiled. Are you sure you do not wish to sit and join me? Rabbi, I assure you this is no idle threat. Your words have upset more people than you realize. Powerful people. If you do not stop, the next time you see me, I will put you in restraints and take you to trial. You will be put to death. Understood? What I understand is that there is no death. What you think you are doing to my body even now holds no effect on me. I am one with my father. Again, I invite you to join me. I noticed Clavius's lower lip tremble. His face turned as red as the sun before a storm. His open hand ran through his cropped brown hair. This is no joke, Rabbi. His open hand ran through his cropped brown hair. I already read that. He leaned his blade a little further into my chest, but there was still no pain. I could feel a small amount of blood form next to the blade. Clavius backed away and sheathed his sword. You've been warned, he said, shaking his head as he stomped away from the outcropping. I smiled, took a breath, and then resumed my meditation with Father. Chapter 4 I called all of our friends and travel companions to join us for a celebration gathering in Jerusalem. There was no theme and I did not tell my brothers and sisters the reason for the gathering. Mary and the women had departed, whispering in high tones to secure a room for our celebration. A kind, gray-haired woman with a smattering of missing teeth named Ruth ran the establishment. She was trusted, as we had come to her many times for meals and to have conversations away from prying eyes. On the day of celebration, all arrived merry in spirit. There was only a few days after we, got, we were greeted in the 
Jewish streets of Jerusalem with warm and wide-open arms by many in our community. No one in our tight group was aware of my upcoming teaching demonstration except for Mary. Knowing that my time in a body was growing near the end, she rarely left my side. When she did, she constantly practiced forgiveness in her own mind. But I could tell this was not always easy for her. The others had no idea. To them, she was still the sweet, beautiful, and intelligent Mary they all loved. She was the embodiment of a true master. Marion arrived at Ruth's gathering room to ensure all was well and prepared for the many people who expected to arrive. We were also accompanied by Issa, Miriam, and Rebecca, three of Mary's most loyal followers. They were all clad in blue and white headdressings. Issa stood out among the three with her high Arab cheeks, gleaming black eyes, and stunning beauty. She was Thomas's wife and had the patience of a mother cat. She needs to be patient with Thomas, amusing myself in the moment. Mary and I held hands while the women went about rearranging furniture into a semicircle so all of the guests could see each other as best as possible and allow access for the host and her helpers to bring food and drink to the group. We felt deep gratitude for all the assistance. I also noticed how smooth Mary's olive skin was and the lightness of her hand and mine. I poured wine for all of us and then tried to sit at the very end of the semicircle. Mary pulled on my arm gently and leaned into my ear, where I could feel and smell her sweet breath on me. Oh, no, you don't. Tonight we will be celebrating our time with you, and you will be in the center. I'll be on your right. Then she kissed my ear. Issa, Miriam, and Rebecca were used to seeing Mary and me exchange hugs and kisses in public. Ruth was not. She let out a slight gasp and then dropped an empty cup. My apologies, she muttered as she picked up the cup and briskly walked from the room, fumbling with her shawl. Mary and I sat patiently waiting for the others. The three women ran out of things to arrange and joined us at the table. They too began drinking wine and we engaged in light conversation. Finally, Marion asked, Rabbis, what are we celebrating tonight? Passover is not for a few days. Shouldn't we be saving for the feast? She tucked a black lock back into her headdress. Mary looked at me with knowing eyes and then looked back toward the women. All will be revealed in due course, my sisters. Meanwhile, let's just enjoy each other's company and the opportunity to relax among good friends. They nodded, and then we all turned at once as several people entered the room. Loud conversation and laughter filled the once quiet space. Thomas walked over to us, put his arms around Issa's ample waist, and gave her a big kiss on the cheek. Still feeling embarrassed about public affection, she hid her head in her robes and then poked Thomas in ex his exposed chest. It smells like someone has already started his celebration. How much wine have you had? He broke out into a wide grin. I'd say more than you, dear wife, but not nearly as much as most of these travel-weary brothers of mine. Philip, Thaddeus, Andrew, and James came over to Thomas, and all four slapped him on the back, their eyes gleaming with merriment and drink. 
Mary and I stood to start receiving our friends. My brother James walked over and gave me a big hug. He was slightly taller than me and bulky with muscle. Thomas was right. It smelled like my good friends had been celebrating for a while. Welcome, brothers and sisters. Please, all, take your seats so we may get some food in your bellies, which are filled with spirit, or spirits, I said, hoping someone would get my little joke. I heard Andrew and Thomas chuckle. The room was filled with scraping chairs, pouring of wine, and some water, loud conversation, and everyone taking turns giving hugs to Mary and me. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, I exclaimed with my hands outstretched. Please, let's take a moment to prepare our celebration with each other before things get too out of hand. The room responded with hearty giggles as everyone took their seats. I won't be giving long lectures this evening, I began. Off to my right, I heard Bartholomew let out a whew, followed by Matthew's chortling. Yes, disappointing to some of you, I know. But as we make merry, laugh, and enjoy each other's company, let us not forget why we are really here. If not for our Father in heaven, we would not have life. If it were not for seeing each other as spirit, we would lose our way back to Father. So in preparation for this time together, let us spend a moment in silence, sending our love to God and receiving his love back. All closed their eyes, and there were several coughs, sneezes, and deep breaths released as everyone started to relax. Mary clasped my hand under the table as we sat in silence for several minutes. Thank you, Father. You are our life. You are our love. God is. Everyone knew that was the signal to bring their minds back into the room. Many let out gentle sighs. All wore smiles on their faces. A few of my friends seemed to sway under the influence of wine. Judas and Simon seemed to be the most affected. Now, let us all enjoy the respect, love, and care of each other, and wash your brother's or sister's feet. I will begin by washing Mary, and then Thomas. From there, each of you will wash the other in turn. Ruth, may I have two washing bowls with some towels, please? Ruth had already warmed the water and prepared the steaming bowls perfectly. She placed one bowl in front of Mary and one bowl in front of Thomas. Master, shouldn't each one of us take a turn and wash your feet? Thomas asked. Thomas, I wouldn't be consistent if I had all of my friends treat me like I was better than all of you. We are the same, my brother. Thomas shrugged his shoulders. Okay, but watch out for the smell. His laugh was interrupted by an elbow in the back from Issa. Then she plugged her nose with two fingers and got an even bigger response from the, from the room. I got down on my hands and knees and carefully slid Mary's sandals off. I gently lifted one foot over the washing bowl and began to cleanse her smooth olive-colored foot. I could hear Ruth bringing in more cleansing bowls, ready to replace them as they became dirty or cooled down. Mary let out a soft coo of delight at the warmth of the water and my touch on her gentle feet. I dried her foot thoroughly and then proceeded to her other foot. She sighed and wrinkled her toes as I cleaned underneath her foot. When I had dried both feet, I kissed each one and then looked up into her face. Her black eyes opened 
and filled with salty tears, but they did not drop. She leaned down and kissed the top of my head. I nodded to her, and she turned to wash John's feet. I turned to Thomas on all fours and began to wash his feet. He too let out sighs as I touched and washed him. A big smile came across his face as he sank back into his chair even more. When I was finished, he thanked me and then gratefully took the bowl and began washing the feet of his wife. I returned to my chair and closed my eyes, enjoying the sounds of water running over feet, sighing, and some light laughs of the ticklish kind. To my right, the procession was Mary, John, Miriam, Peter, Rebecca, Judas, Nadav, Andrew, and Bartholomew. To my left, the procession was Thomas, Issa, James, Philip, Matthew, Thaddeus, and Simon. The left side of the room finished first, and I could hear Simon walk across the room to wash Bartholomew's feet. Upon Simon's returning to his seat, I could tell that the washing had completed. I opened my eyes and looked around the room. All the faces I saw reflected peace and happiness. A beautiful way to start any meal. Let the celebration begin, I announced. I picked up my glass of wine, held it out, and then drank the contents in one draft. You are now a master of drink, Master Yeshua, Peter announced as he followed my lead. He picked up his glass, raised it out to the room, and then drank the sweet and bitter liquid. The rest of the room mimicked our actions, and there was much chatter as glasses were refilled. Much of the evening was spent with loud conversation and laughter. Many discussed the villages and homes we had visited over the last several weeks. It had been a very intense time for the group before arriving in Jerusalem. We would spend two or three days in a village until some of the group would leave early to prepare for the next visit. My reputation had grown, so we were recognized easily and approached by either supporters or those who saw me as the blasphemer. I called the opposition my brothers-in-arms because they always had their arms crossed. Thomas thought it was funny. All of these encounters seemed to disturb the group to some extent. There was much anxiety over our getting into trouble and being arrested or possibly killed by Romans or Jewish zealots. I loved my friends, but most had a long road ahead of them to really learn and practice true forgiveness. At one point in the evening, I motioned for Ruth to come over. I noticed Judas and Simon were starting to bob their heads up and down from the heaviness of their imbibing. I asked her to remove all of the wine and just have water available. I ensured everyone had time to sober up before I made my big announcement for the evening. Protest among the group arose, but when Ruth explained that I had asked her to remove the wine, the Egyptians died down to indignant humps. When it felt like the right time, I banged my empty cup on the table to signal the time for silence. Conversations quickly hushed as all turned their attention to me with eager anticipation. My brothers and sisters, thank you for being here with Mary and me. The group looked very relaxed and happy, smiles on their faces, hands over full stomachs, and heads lightened with wine. Many of you have been wondering why we have gathered and what we are celebrating. Before I explain the celebration, let's take a moment to thank our Father, God, 
for the wonderful blessing of togetherness and joy that we are experiencing together. I closed my eyes and reached out for Mary's and Thomas's hands. They in turn created a chain of hand-holding while we brought our minds to God and enjoyed the peace of his connection. I breathed in and out repeatedly until I no longer felt the effects of food processing through my body, and I was able to connect even more deeply in my mind. We were held in this state for many minutes until I heard Simon snoring at the end of the table. I opened my eyes, squeezed Mary's and Thomas's hands, and addressed the room. Brothers and sisters, return to the room and open your eyes while trying to maintain that connection you've created with our Father in heaven. This is your rightful place with him. Everyone opened their eyes and looked around the room at each other, and I watched them integrate this personal experience with their eyes open. Thaddeus gently placed his hand on Simon's shoulder until Simon jerked awake with a start. He looked around the room with squinted eyes. When he realized he must have fallen asleep, he mumbled, Sorry, my friends. A few of the others snickered. We've been through many ventures together, eh, friends? I looked around the room and saw everyone's head nodding up and down with smiles and grunts of affirmation. These last many years of our communing together have been my deep pleasure as well. I challenged your thinking greatly, and I see many of you truly living what I have spoken. You've listened to Mary and me speak of our Father in ways that you never knew were possible. I looked over at Mary, who is leaned back in her chair, listening intently, looking stately, as if she were a wise old mother who had seen her children through many trials. Yet her inner beauty shined forth so that she appeared ageless. I squeezed her hand, and she squeezed mine. I have mainly talked about loving our Father with all of your might and forgiving your brother so you may be forgiven. Who here can tell me what I mean by forgiveness? The group atmosphere changed from relaxation into slight tension. Many sat up straighter in their chairs, others cleared their throats and looked around the room, and some bowed their heads, hoping they would not have to answer. Philip cleared his throat, took a sip of his water, and looked at me. Master, you speak of forgiveness not as a way to look at a trespasser and say, you've wronged me, but I am on God's side, so I forgive what you say and did to, to wrong me. Instead, you mean that we are to look upon a brother or a situation and realize that this is not what God intends, that our true forms and the true form of what we see is really spirit. We are to remind ourselves of this, and we are also to call upon the Holy Spirit to heal our minds if we find our brother or the situation very difficult to deal with. He looked around the room, and his breathing grew shallow. Is that correct, Master? Mary rested her head on my shoulder and let out her sweet breath. I could not have said it better myself, Rabbi Philip. I winked at him, and he blushed brightly. As Brother Philip has just eloquently summarized, this is what I have taught you in one form or another. Any magical or miraculous things that you may have witnessed between Mary and me are simply because we follow these simple teachings and devote our minds to them. Our minds have healed and allowed us to be connected in spirit form whenever we like. We now live outside of the dream with Father. This is your birthright as well. Leave your materials to the world of bodies and accept your spirit every moment of every day. I took a sip of my water and then another. The room was perfectly silent aside from the flicker of candles and some runny noses. 
And now we are gathered here to celebrate my final teaching lesson. Shock and surprise burst through the room, and it erupted into chairs scraping against the floor and outcries as half the room stood up, asking several questions at one time. My friends knew that the political pressure against their efforts was mounting on a daily basis, and they feared I or they would be taken to prison at any moment. My brothers and sisters, please sit back down, I said, motioning with one hand for them to sit, as I continued to hold Mary's hand. In the world of the split mime, there is always some sort of violence that emerges. When love real reveals itself in this world, its opposite must also appear. For that is how the ego mind works. The world of duality is simply a dream. In this case, as I walk around and share the love of God, it has stirred much fear, anger, and hatred in our community and with those who appear to rule Judea. And so this hatred must also be met with love. That is the only answer if you want to be truly free of the world of bodies, illusions, and duality. James stood up. My brother, none of us in this room will ever let anything evil touch you, nor will we let anyone harm you in any way. A fist pounded on the table. John growled, I second that. I will destroy anyone who wishes to do ill upon you, master. I held up my hand to prevent the anger from boiling over. My brothers, you have two good ears, correct? I looked between James and John, and they already knew they had overreacted, and both sat down. I understand that for some of you, practicing forgiveness may be more difficult than for others. The things that you see with your eyes seem so real, but this, this is all simply a dream you have made up. The only response to this dream is perfect love. No other response is of God. That is why I'm asking you to accept this as necessary and beautiful. Peter stood next and looked around the room. Master, I understand what you say, but it's very hard to accept that something terrible might happen to you and that there is nothing we should do about it. As much as I want to just see the situation with love and forgiveness, I cannot bear to just let you be taken away and tortured or worse, killed. He glanced over at Mary to see if she agreed with his words, but she looked as relaxed and peaceful as ever, still holding my hand. Brother Peter, my last lesson is meant for all of you. It will be the most extreme forgiveness lesson you will ever witness. For you, it will be a personal lesson because when asked about our friendship over the next day, you will deny it three times. Tears formed in Peter's eyes. I would never. I will never. He slammed both fists onto the table. My brother, I know you would not under normal circumstances. I know you love me, but there it is. How will you forgive yourself? You are already forgiven by your father, but I say to all of you how you react and handle the situation of watching your teacher and friend go through his final lesson will be up to you. This is your first test on your own. How will you apply what I have taught you? How will you forgive yourself and your brothers and sisters when all appear to make bad decisions or mistakes? Half the room was either in deep thought or still drowning in the emotions that my words had stirred inside of them. John and James were still breathing hard, wondering how they would protect me. Peter's face was contorted in pain by what I had told him. The rest were coping with imagining what the next few days would bring. I unclasped Mary's hand and went over to Peter. 
I placed my hands on top of his head, then to his shoulders, and then one hand on his chest and one on top of his head. It's all right, my brother. Just play your role and forgive the dream every step of the way. I love you. I placed a gentle kiss on top of his head and can feel him cry, but he seemed calm, calmed at the same time. I stood upright and looked around the room. Also, one of you here will be the one to turn me over to the Roman centurion Clavius, who's been so eager to see me in shackles. The room literally exploded into chairs, flying out from the table, fists flying and hair being pulled. Master, why would anyone in this room want to turn you over? We all love you. Thaddeus looked utterly confused, with his brows deeply furrowed and cheeks almost rising to meet them. Of course none of you wants to turn me in. It will just happen. And I say to all of you again, be good to each other, be loving to each other, and forgive each other. For what your brother appears to do is not part of God's reality. Only love is. That is the only reaction you are called to choose. All other reactions only feed your split mind and keep you separated from your brothers and sisters, and especially father. I could hear John mutter, I will not let this happen. Thomas stood up. Master, are you telling us that you will not be among us much longer? And unfortunately, we're running out of time, so I'm stopping um, right before the end of the uh, fourth chapter. It's page 23 in the hardcover. And again, hopefully you've enjoyed what you've heard so far. And for those of you that actually enjoy reading hard books or soft cover books, again, it's available uh, the Spirit That Moves Mountains, a novel by Scott Kreitza, K-R-Y-T-S-A, is available on Amazon.com, uh, or if you have a nook at Barnes & Noble, uh, barnesandnoble.com. Uh, you'd actually have to walk into a store and ask for them to order one to bring them, or to have an actual hard copy brought to you. Um, but that is another way. Um, so yeah, please check out the book. And if you've already read the book or are reading it, feel free to go to Amazon.com and, and leave a review. I would really love that. Again, an honest review. Um, really, what you thought of it could be positive, negative. You maybe loved it, maybe hated it, maybe you just thought it was meh. Either way, doesn't matter. I just really appreciate all of you, and I hope you enjoyed it. And maybe I'll be reading some more from The Spirit That Moves Mountains. For now, take care and deepen in the divine. If you'd like to learn more about Deepening with the Divine or Scott Kreitza, please visit kreitza.com, K-R-Y-T-S-A dot You can sign up for my newsletter and receive a free ebook download, as well as many surprises and gifts throughout the year. The world needs more people like you, God-minded and spirit workers.